0: Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us understand your word. And thank you that that your word is powerful, mighty and speaks to us, speaks to our hearts, even today. And Lord, I thank you for the book of Isaiah in so many ways, a challenging book, Um, so many sermons on sin and judgment so far in this series, and another one this morning actually, but, but Lord I thank you for this word because it has challenged us, it has lifted our eyes heavenwards to gaze upon Jesus Christ and seek him for mercy and forgiveness, and Lord that is what I pray for this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst as we read Isaiah chapter 5 and as I preach it, and we would, we would seek to to cast all our trust all, we would go to Jesus Christ we would put our faith in Jesus Christ once again uh, and know that he forgives us for our sin uh, Lord I, I do pray that as a consequence of this sermon we, we would really enter into communion uh, and fellowship with Jesus Christ and bear much fruit in keeping with repentance Lord I, I pray this, this sermon would be a significant moment for us as a church in terms of bearing fruit in this town for your kingdom Lord God I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, last summer at West Point, Guy Miller, who is the leader of our movement of churches, we're part of a family of churches called Commission, which is part of New Frontiers, and Guy Miller, who leads that movement of churches, at West Point last summer, stood up and preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And he called thousands of people, 4,000, 5,000 people listening to him preach. He called thousands of people to know God's blessing in their lives and to thrive like trees bearing fruit. He called thousands of people to thrive bearing fruit for God. And Psalm 1, which uh, Deo read earlier in the service, says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way that sinners takes, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." Do you know this morning, God wants us to thrive. God wants us to thrive. God wants to bless us. God wants us to know his favor in our lives. God wants us to be fruitful, to to show love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, the fruit of the spirit listed in Galatians 5. He wants us to show that fruit in our lives. And he wants us to multiply as well. He wants us to share the gospel with people and for people to come into the kingdom and the family of God and for us to grow as a church. He wants us as individual Christians and as a church to thrive, to know his blessing and favour in our lives. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you living a blessed, fruitful life? Are you living a blessed, fruitful life? Do you desire to live a life blessed by God, bearing fruit for him in all seasons. Now let me read from Isaiah 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, It is quite long, so I I do apologise for that. But let me read to you Isaiah 5 and then explain why I've led with that question. So Isaiah 5, the whole chapter. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, but he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an effer. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with the thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness." Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpse were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, nor a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. So I ask you this morning are you living a blessed and fruitful life? And the reason I ask you that question is because Isaiah 5 describes the exact opposite. The, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are not experiencing God's blessing. They're hearing the woes pronounced against them of God. Did you see that in the text I read to you six times? In verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 18, in verse 20, in verse 21, and in verse 22. God pronounces woe upon the people of Judah. These people are not experiencing God's favor, but God's anger. Verse 25 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. These people are not experiencing fruitfulness. God looked at his vineyard, and he wanted to see grapes, but instead what was growing was wild grapes. And, and the Hebrew for wild grapes could, could be translated wild grapes. He could also be translated poisonous berries. It, it, perhaps my favorite possible translation for that phrase is stinking, worthless fruit. God looked for healthy, juicy grapes from which to make wine, and instead he saw stinking fruit worthless fruit. So the people of Judah are not experiencing God's blessing. They're not experiencing God's favor. They're not experiencing fruitfulness. So if you want to live a blessed and fruitful life this morning, Isaiah 5 is the anti-example. Isaiah 5 is a warning to heed. Isaiah 5 is a lesson to learn. And I hope we will learn that lesson. Um, as I've said on several occasions throughout this pas- these, these sermons in Isaiah, this is a sombre passage. This is a scary passage. This is a passage about the judgment of God. Um, but we do not shy away from preaching these passages because they're very useful. And I, I really do hope and pray this morning that as we go through this passage, we're going to be challenged. We're going to see ways in which our lives are kind of similar to the fruitlessness of Judah. And we're going to be challenged to change. And then ultimately, we're going we're to come to the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ as it relates to this passage. So I'm going I'm to preach through four things this morning. I'm going to start by talking about the beloved God, the provider of all we need, verses 1 to 4. These four points are on the screen, I think. Um, secondly, I'm going to preach through the six woes against Judah. Those are in verse 8 to 12 and verses 18 to 23. And thirdly, I'm going to preach through four therefores. And as I go through the four therefores, I'm going to preach about the God of holiness who punishes sin. That's in verse 13 to 17 and verses 24 to 30. And finally, and fourthly, I'm going to talk about the true fruitful vine of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's begin. Let's talk first, firstly about the beloved God, the provider of all we need. i mean to flick on a few slides if that's okay. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong. Go back. There we go. Perfect. Yeah. Sorry about that. So firstly, the beloved God, the provider of all we need. Isn't it, it's kind of bizarre. If you look at the start of verse five, uh, chapter five, sorry, verse one, chapter five is a love song. Do you see what Isaiah says at the start of chapter five? Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So this chapter of scripture begins with Isaiah the prophet singing a love song to God. Uh, you'll notice that he starts Isaiah starts talking in third person at the start of this chapter so in verses 1 and 2 he says he's talking about God as my beloved he's saying he dug it he cleared it of stones he planted it he looked for it to yield grapes he's talking about God in the third person as Isaiah sings this love song to the Lord but then Isaiah kind of enters into prophet mode and he starts to speak in the first person on behalf of God so verses verses 3 to 5 he says um, judge between me and my vineyard. That's God speaking through Isaiah, God speaking. Um, in verse four, was there, was there me um, more to do for, for my vineyard? I have not done it. I looked for it to yield grapes. So, so Isaiah starts singing this love song to God, but as he sings this love song to God, as often happens in the prophetic, that this prophet Isaiah starts to speak words of prophecy, speaking on behalf of God so I just, want, I just want to pause there and, and think for a moment about our beloved God. I wonder whether you have this relationship with God where you can speak of God as your beloved one, one whom you love with all your heart. I spoke last week about God who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, who's powerful beyond measure. Well, this week, I, I, I want to describe God as our beloved God, one whom we love. I wonder whether your prayer life reflects those two things. Do you you pray to God as the Lord of hosts, this powerful, awesome God, and at the same time can refer to God as your beloved, one whom you truly love and adore? Because in the first four verses of chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, we're given good reason to love God. God, in in Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 4, is described as a God who provides for his people, provides all that they need have a look at verse 1. In verse 1, the vineyard God plants, the vineyard which is the nation of Judah, is described as being planted on a fertile hill. So that's a good start. This vineyard's being planted in a fertile place. And then in verse 2, God does everything required for this vineyard to grow and to thrive. God says he digs it. He clears it of stones. He builds a watchtower. He hews out a wine vat. In every way, this is a vineyard set up for success. This is a vineyard built by the Lord, planted by the Lord, to be very, very fruitful. Judah, the metaphorical vineyard, has no excuses not to bear good fruit for God. I wonder when I first asked that question, are you living a blessed and fruitful life? Well, I wonder how you answered that question. I wonder whether the first thing you thought is a whole bunch of excuses why you're not bearing fruit for God in your life. Sometimes we can make excuses, can't we? If only I had more time, then I'd be more fruitful to God. If only I had slightly more money, then I would use my money selflessly to bear godly fruit by giving to others. If only I was a bit smarter, then I'd be bolder in evangelism, sharing my faith with others. Because at the moment, I'm scared that they're going to ask questions that I don't know the answer to. But if I was a bit smarter, I I would know how to respond to their questions. If only, if only, if only. We, We sometimes can be people who make excuses for not bearing fruit to God. And I think the people of Judah were probably excuse-making people, people who are part of the if-only generation. Are you part of the if-only generation? Is that how you think about your life? If only I had this, if only this were true. Do you know what, biblically, it's true that God has given you everything you need to thrive and be fruitful. Romans 8 verse 32 says this of God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also give, graciously give us all things? If God would give us his son in Jesus Christ who died upon the cross, how would he not then give us everything we need to be fruitful? same is true of Judah. God has, God has planted a beautiful vineyard. He's, done all, he's given them everything they need to be fruitful, and yet they're failing. Though God has provided Judah the vineyard with all she needs to produce wonderful fruit, instead, verse 4, Judah is producing rotten, wild grapes. And, And so as a consequence of this result, because of what Judah has done in disobeying God and producing wicked, evil things rather than good, healthy fruit, God pronounces six woes against the people of Judah in this chapter of scripture, six woes against Judah, which I'm going to go through and and we're going to reflect on and think about. So the first woe against Judah in Isaiah chapter five is in verse eight. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Do you know, when um, the people of Israel first entered into the promised land, Um, God had a very clear plan for how they should treat the land. He divided the land up into the tribes. So every tribe of Israel had their own portion of land given to them. And then he divided, and then within those tribes, the land was divided up amongst families. So within the nation of Israel, every single family would have owned a portion or a plot of land. Everyone would have been a landowner in the nation of Israel, in the nation of Judah. Um, and so people would have farmed the land or used the land to make profit and survive. There would have been trading and things like that going on. But, but sometimes some families would have fallen on hard times. Um, so maybe their land just didn't seem to be producing the crop that they wanted to grow. Or maybe they just weren't as shrewd a businessman as some of the other people. So, so sometimes within the nation of Israel, people fell on hard times. And so what God did is he put a provision within the law. And he said, if if you're a family that's that's struggling, if if you've fallen hard times, if you're not making money, then what you can do is you can sell your plot of land to one of your neighbours, and your neighbour's responsibility is to look after you and to feed you and and to provide for you, and you will work for them. So there's, there's provision within the law so that no family goes hungry, and every family is looked after. But then there's also this wonderful idea, which is called the Year of Jubilee. So if you were a family and you sold your plot of land to another family because you were struggling and you needed the money to feed your family, and so this family mercifully buys your land and helps you out, in the 50th year, in the year of Jubilee, something amazing happens. All the land is returned to the original family who owns that plot of land. So if you've sold your land, in the 50th year, you know you're getting it back. And so every family in Israel were supposed to own land and and have their own provision within this nation. Well, in the nation of Judah, this law of God is clearly not happening. They've forgotten the year of Jubilee. They're neglecting it. Clever, shrewd businessmen are duping other families into taking their land and never giving it back. And so God says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, there's a whole load of families who are not being given back their portions of land. And there's a few rich individuals who are owning house after house after house, field after field after field, and they're they're creating an estate so big they are isolated from everybody else in the community. and I say this to each of you this morning. God cares about how we earned our wealth and possessions, and he cares about how we use our wealth and possessions. The, The law of Israel shows that God cares very much about how we earn money and how we use our money and our wealth and our property. And he speaks here particularly to those of us who do own property. I know not all of us will and do, but he speaks particularly to those of us who own property. And, and I think that this verse 8 is a real challenge. And I would invite you, if you're an owner of property or you want to be an owner of property, to examine your heart uh, on the basis of verse 8 and ask yourself this, is your property your castle? Have you bought a private place at the expense of others in the community so that you can enjoy your own isolation? Or is your house or flat or wherever you live a tool to build community and bless your neighbours? Because that's, that's the problem that God has got with Judah. It is, is that these people have built up these huge estates, house after house after house, and they're not caring about the people who don't have any land or don't have anywhere to stay, and they're isolating themselves, and they're keeping themselves to themselves, and their house, their property, their land has become their private castle where no one else is allowed in. And that, that is not how God would have us use our property and our wealth. And the places where we live. Rather, he would have us use our houses and the places where we live as ways of serving and building the community, as ways of loving others. Consider this: in Isaiah five verse eight, people. That's my phone. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, In Isaiah five verse eight, the people of Judah are joining houses and, and storing up wealth and possessions for themselves. We'll jump forward to the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it, when the Holy Spirit becomes, comes upon a group of people, these people are not storing up land and wealth for themselves. Instead, they're selling their possessions and having everything in common. People are selling fields and taking all of the money and giving it to the church. It's a radical difference, isn't it? Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying that if you own property, you should... You should definitely sell it and give your money away. It's not that God condemns or despises wealth. And it's not that God doesn't want us to own land. Obviously, in the law, there's provision for people to own land. But God does have strong opinions about how wealth is earned and how it is used. And if it's earned in a way that preys on those less fortunate than others, then that's not pleasing in God's sight. And if wealth and possessions are used in a selfish way that helps you isolate yourself rather than serving and blessing the community around you, woe to you, says Isaiah 5, verse 8. The second woe is in verses 11 to 12. And it says this, Woe to those who rise early that they may run after strong drink. Getting drunk is described as a sin in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament in particular, there's a very strong connection between drink and sexual desire. Do you you see that in that verse 11? Um, They get up early in the morning so that they may run after strong drink, and they tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. That's, That's a a reference to sexual desire. And it's something that we see in our culture all the time. Is people get drunk and dr- get drunk late into the evening until wine inflames them. And they give in to sinful sexual temptation. So if you have a problem with getting drunk, know this, this is not the will of God in your life. If you have a problem with seeking sexual arousal from anyone other than your spouse... God opposes that. Woe to you, says Isaiah 5, verse 11. But maybe there's some of you in this room and those two things aren't, uh, aren't necessarily a problem or not an obvious problem in your life. And for you, I'd like you to look at the end of verse 12. Because the end of verse 12 is very interesting. What Isaiah, what God through Isaiah does in these verses is he, is he compares the thrill of getting drunk with the thrill of regarding the deeds of the Lord and seeing the work of God's hands. So he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. And then at the end, these are people who do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. In other words, maybe you don't have a problem with getting drunk. Maybe you don't have a problem with with seeking after sex in the wrong places but I wonder whether you're someone who does often and always regard and see how God is working in your life. I wonder if I asked, if I said, who's got a testimony of what God has done this week? Whether you all sit and frantically think and go, oh, what, what has God done? I can't, I can't think of anything. This is really embarrassing and everyone be quiet. Or whether some of you be able to stand up immediately and say, God did this for me this week. God worked in this person's life in this way. Can you think of the ways God has moved? Are you regarding the deeds of the Lord in your life? You, would you be ready to share things that God has done in your life in the past week? And you know what, I'm, um, I'm a very lucky position as a pastor of a church because people share things with me. And um, I, I receive regularly three or four texts in a week with people telling me the things that God is doing, things that I can pray for. And and I know God is doing amazing work in our midst. And I also think about my own life and know that God is doing fantastic things. God is working in amazing ways. So, woe to those people who get drunk. Woe to those people who seek sexual arousal in the wrong places. Woe to those people who do not regard the work of the Lord. Thirdly, In verses 18 to 19, God writes this. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. The picture here is of a horse and cart, and the horse is sin. And what people are doing is hitching the the cart of their life to sin. And sin is guiding them and directing them and pulling them along. But these people, that it says they're using cords of falsehood. And that's because at the same time as they're hitching their lives to the horse of sin, they're also, in verse 19, saying things like this. Let God come quickly. Let God draw nearer that we may know his work. In other words, their words seem good. They're the kind of people who say, yeah, I just want to see God work in the world. But in the private scenes of their life, they're hitching their lives to sin. Their words Hypocritical. Their words are shallow and their deeds show their true self. It's the equivalent of saying this. I want to see God move powerfully in Ferrum. I want to see people saved in Ferrum and the surrounding region. In Droxford and in Gosport and all over the place. I want God come on, God. I want to see you move more quickly. Come quickly. Do amazing things, God, in this town. It's the equivalent of saying that and then spending your entire week prioritizing everything else other than evangelism and trusting God and and believing in him. That's what these people are doing. Woe to those people whose words, whose religious words are shallow and, and hypocritical. The fourth woe, verse 20. Woe to those people who call good evil and evil good. And I think the fifth woe is linked. The fifth woe... Uh, in verse 21, I think, says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. These are people who, instead of humbly reading and submitting to God's word, they decide they know better. They decide that they're wise in their own eyes. And they go about telling people what's good and what's evil according to their own wisdom, and they get things wrong and mixed up. I'm not sure I think there's anything so foolishly proud than to claim to be a Christian, to have access to God's word, but then to disagree with God's word on particular issues because it doesn't sit well with how you think about the world. That is foolishly proud. That's being wise in your own eyes. That's mixing up evil and good. Um, I'm very sorry about that. Oh, it's not me. It's you, Danny. Sorry. I thought it was me. (laughs) So, woe to those people who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those people who are wise in their own eyes. Sickly, the final woe, in verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Isaiah hits at drinking once again. Hear the message. God opposes getting drunk. Woe to those people who take bribes. Isaiah once again hits at those people who seek dishonest and greedy gain. Woe to those who deprive the innocent of his right. Isaiah hits at those people who are seeing injustice in the world and denying people true justice. So, Isaiah 5 reveals six woes. And all these woes are lessons in what it means to live cursed lives that bear rotten fruit. Having brought those six woes, he moves on to four therefores. I want you to see this, that because of the way the people of Judah have acted, there is a therefore, there is a judgment that's going to come. There's four therefores in in Isaiah chapter 5. There's six woes and there's four therefores. The first therefore comes in verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. I want you to see in verse 13 that God's punishment fits the crime. Those who have greedily built up land for themselves within the nation of Israel will go into exile and have no land at all. Those who have run after strong drink all day will be parched with thirst. Then in verse 14, there's another therefore. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and will swallow up the nobility of Jerusalem. In other words, these these nobles in Jerusalem, these people of Judah who've sinned, will die for their sins. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. The grave is going to swallow these people up. People will die for the sins that they've committed. Then in verse 24, there's therefore number three. Those who have sinned with their tongues, whose religious words were hypocritical and shallow, who, who mixed up good and evil with their tongue, with their words, they will be devoured by tongues of fire. Verse 24. And then verse 25, therefore number four. And, and in, in verse 25 onwards, to the end of the passage, God's, God's anger is kindled and God speaks about the Assyrian army who will conquer all of Israel, except Jerusalem. Jerusalem was ultimately conquered by the Babylonian army. And you see how God is acting. In verse 26, it says, God whistles, and these nations come and bring judgment upon the land of Israel. Their ferocity of these nations is compared to lions in verse 29, and darkness and distress will fall upon Judah for her sin, verse 30. Those people who sin, therefore, will face the judgment of God. Six woes and four therefores. Those who sin, those who disobey God's commands, will, therefore, face the judgment of God. I want to direct your attention to verse 16 very quickly. In verse 16, it says this. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And I don't know whether you've heard me say this before from the pulpit, but often we say things like, because God is good and holy and righteous, he must punish evil. Have you heard me say things like that before? Because God is good, holy, and righteous, he must punish evil. Well, what I want you to see in Isaiah 5 is that's not my idea. That is a biblical idea, because in verse 16, that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. As God punishes the sin of the people of Judah, what is happening is the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. In other words, God's Judgment is part of his righteousness, it's part of his goodness, it's part of his holiness, and as punishment comes upon the sins of the world, God is exalted, God is lifted up, and we see him for all his perfect goodness, in all his righteousness, in all his justice. A king who ignores wrongdoing in his kingdom is not a good king. You might describe him as a merciful king. If a king never punishes evil, you might say he's a very merciful king. He forgives people for the things they've done wrong. But you would not describe him as a good king if he does not punish evil. Because imagine being a victim of crime or sin in that nation, in that kingdom where sin is not punished. You would be full of bitterness. You would be full of anger, and not only at the person who committed the crime, but also the king who did not judge the person who committed the crime. So you would not call a king a good king if he ignores wrongdoing in his kingdom. And in the same way, we can only say God is good if he does truly punish wrongdoing and wickedness in the land. That's a sober thought. Isaiah 5 is a lesson in people living cursed lives that bear rotten fruit. And it brings a revelation of the therefores of sin. Because human beings sin... God will punish evildoers, if you've shown greed in your life, if you've gathered up wealth and possessions at the expense of others, if you've gotten drunk, if you haven't given God due regard for his work in your life, if you've spoken in a shallow hypocritical way about God, if you've spoken wrongly about good and evil in your life, if you've been wise in your own sight, if you've gotten drunk, if you've ever taken a bribe, if you've ever hindered justice, you stand in the way of God's anger. You will face judgment for your sin. Sheol, the grave will swallow you up. Fire will devour you. Where shall we go to flee from God's wrath? Where where can we take shelter? against this just punishment that will come against the sins that we've committed. There is only one safe place, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in love for you, took your punishment upon himself, so that anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus is forgiven and is saved from the fire that devours sinners, is safe from the grave from Sheol that swallows up those people who have disobeyed God's commands. And so Isaiah 5 is a stark, strong reminder that each and every one of us need to run to Jesus. We need to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. We need to believe on him and cry out for forgiveness because it's only in Jesus Christ that we find forgiveness. It's only in Jesus that that the wrath of God will pass over us, will not harm us. It's only in believing in Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness that the wrath of God will not fall upon us. So this morning, I urge each and every one of you to run to Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, receive his mercy. It's also a reminder for all of us who are Christians here this morning of the urgency we should have to share the gospel with others. That wrath of God will fall upon people who do not believe in Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness. So I call on you this morning, believe on Christ, And then share the amazing gospel message with as many people as you possibly can. Do it in a wise, loving way. Don't ram it down people's throats. But there is such an urgency to declare this message because the wrath of God is coming. God is righteous and just in punishing sin. And if we do not warn people about the judgment that is coming, if we do not lead them to Jesus Christ that they might receive forgiveness and believe on Christ, then they will fall, they will suffer under the wrath of God. So Christ is our forgiveness. Christ is our shelter from the wrath of God. But there is another way in which Christ is the answer and solution to this chapter, Isaiah 5. And this is where I finish my sermon this morning. Isaiah 5 describes a rotten vineyard, a failing vineyard, one that's producing terrible rotten fruit. In John 15, Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. And when he uses that word true, why, he, he could have just said, I'm the vine. Why does he say, I am the true vine? Well, he, he's, he's comparing himself. He's differentiating himself from the vines in the vineyard of Israel who produced rotten fruit. He's saying that was not the true vine. If you're in the vineyard of Israel, that is not where you'll find salvation. You will only find salvation in the vine of Jesus Christ, for he is the true vine. Let me read to you John 15. Verses 1 to 5. I love these verses. We had these verses at my wedding. John 15, verses 1 to 5. Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing, this then is the secret to living a blessed and fruitful life abiding in Jesus Christ while the The false vineyard of Judah produced bad, rotten fruit. The true vine, Jesus Christ, produces good fruit. All who are truly connected to the vine of Christ produce good fruit. You want to live a life blessed and fruitful? Abide in Christ. Let me finish by answering this question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, firstly, it means connection. Every branch that bears fruit needs to be connected to the vine. If you chop a branch off and throw it on the ground, it's not going to produce any more fruit. It will die. And so if you want to abide in Christ, you need to be connected to Christ. And, when, and Christians are connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of a believer, they are spiritually united with Jesus. They become part of the vine. You become a branch of the vine of Jesus Christ. So if you want to be fruitful, stay connected to Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you. If you're a Christian, you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. He will never leave or forsake you, but we need to pray and press into his presence. Ask to be filled regularly with the Holy Spirit. That will connect you to Jesus Christ in the spiritual union. And through that spiritual union, the spiritual sap will flow up the vine into you, the branch, and you will bear amazing fruit for the kingdom of God, more love, more joy, more peace and patience in your lives, more people to share the gospel with, more multiplication in your life. Abide in Jesus Christ. Stay connected to him by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means complete dependence. Every branch on a vine is completely dependent on the vine to provide the water that it needs, to provide the sap that it needs. And so we also are dependent on Christ for life. And this is expressed firstly through faith. You're dependent on Christ for life when you say, I have faith in Jesus. only by his death and resurrection that I have life also. And secondly, this is expressed through prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, I am dependent on you in all things. Help me in all things. Are those the kind of prayers that you are praying? This is the secret to thriving in life. This is the secret to living truly blessed and fruitful lives, abiding in Jesus Christ through spiritual connection and complete dependence. The vineyard of Judah produced rotten fruit in Isaiah 5, and so God pronounced woes against her. And I want us to be mindful of those sins we discussed. If there are things in your life that you need to change, confess that sin this morning and seek prayer. But more than that, I want us to abide in Christ, receive forgiveness from him, be spiritually connected and dependent upon him in all things that we might bear the very best fruit for God in this town and beyond. Is is that what you want? If that's what you want, then stand with me and I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite Joe up to come and lead us in a final song. Oh, I've gone over time, actually. Forget that, Joe. I'm just going to pray for us. Let me me stand and pray for us. I apologise for going over time. Heavenly Father... Lord God we have sinned against you we have been greedy we have amassed wealth in ways that are dishonest and, and, and hurt others we have not used our wealth and possessions and our property in a way that honours you and builds community Lord, Lord God we have, we have not been thrilled to see and regard your deeds and have sought thrill and adventure and excitement in all kinds of other areas of life forgive us Heavenly Father Lord, we have not spoken truthfully about what is good and what is evil. We have not spoken in a deep way about the things of God. Rather, we've spoken in a hypocritical way while we've sinned in our private lives. Father, forgive us. Lord, we've acted dishonestly and not sought justice in this land. Father, forgive us, I pray and we thank you so much for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we take refuge in Christ today. We believe once again in the forgiveness of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on our behalf. Thank you for rising again in power. Thank you for for offering us the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And Lord, I pray we might abide in you. Lord, the rest of the day, may we abide in you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be dependent upon you in prayer for everything, Lord, that we might grow wonderful fruit for your glory. And Lord, I thank you that it is all for your glory. Don't grow fruit because we're great. We we grow fruit because we're connected to Jesus Christ the vine. And Lord, I, I pray as a church, we would be super fruitful for your kingdom. Lord, I do pray for multiplication, for growth in this church. I pray also that love and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians would grow immeasurably within our community here Lord God. May love abound in this place I pray. May love abound out from this place to others in this town as well I pray Lord God. May we just excel in growing fruit for your kingdom. Come Holy Spirit do that in us I pray and I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.